Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. One more check that I'm recording. Sorry. Okay, I am. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 265 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I took a dip in the North Sea like a legend. Freezing cold legend. Surprisingly not that cold. I know it was kind of miserable everywhere apart from Margate apparently where the sun was shining and the sea... I thought 1 to 10 and freezing is 10 would be about an 8.5. Was about a 6. Had a little float, bobbed around for a bit. Lovely stuff. Like a turd from the North Sea. We're not talking about sewage. All I'm going to say is I didn't add to it. That was my gift to the world. Mick, there's a theme here. Every week is like a a frozen water (laughs) fact. Yeah, next week I'll have had an ice pop or something. I'm Hannah Tunlevy and... Well, I'm just glad to be here, to be honest. It's Tuesday. Yesterday, technology really, really fucked me. And uh, and now I'm just glad to be here. Thanks for your patience. I like that when technology kicks your ass, that is the one time you start believing in a malevolent <laughs> God. Yeah. Someone's fucking with me. Yeah, absolutely. There were. It's totally impossible for my laptop, my recording device and my Wi-Fi to all go at the same time. Uh, Clearly not impossible, I'm afraid. Only if baby Jesus is up there just laughing. Just really angry these days. I don't think that's his vibe, is it? It's not his vibe, is it? No. He's a hippie. Have you ever been to church, lads? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, the religion around it is horrific, but baby Jesus's vibe was very much like, all right, guys, let's all get along and love each other and have a nice time, innit? Here's some fish. Have some yeah. fish. Let's all have fish and chips. It's going to be grand. Well, I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday I really did reverse park. Reclaims applause. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Thanks, well done, Jen. I appreciate well done. you doing that two days in a row. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it is exciting. It is. Reverse parking. It is that is seriously loads more than people who can actually drive can do, Jen. Cause yeah. Like we were discussing before, if you didn't learn to do it in your test and you didn't need to do it properly in your test, a lot of people can't do it. I have on a number of occasions had to say to the driver, how about you pop out and I park the car for you because this is ludicrous. There's traffic backed up all up the street now as you just go, I'm going to have one more go at it and come out and go back in. Yeah. When my very lovely pal lived with me in my house in Yorkshire, she would pull up outside my house, double park, phone me and say, please, can you come out and park the car? Because I can't get it in the space. It wasn't even a small space. Last time I was in Margate, I had to reverse park up a hill. I thought I was going to like completely fuck my clutch. It was awful. But instead, you too were a legend in Margate. Well done. Yeah. I was actually quite good at it. I am shit at driving, but I was quite good at reverse parking. So, uh... Well, there'll always be work as a valet for you. (laughs) How reassuring, Jen. Uh, Finally, that ambition can be ticked off your bucket list. (laughs) Later on, I catch up with theatre makers Larissa Faber and Shamira Turner to talk biological clocks, abortion rights, the percussive joy to be had with a speculum, and Larissa's brilliant play, Stark Bollock Naked. Speculum. (laughs) That is the noise you can make about a speculum, but they're making noises with a speculum. I chat to Samantha Lane, artistic director of Little Angel Theatre, about why it's never too early to start taking your kids to the theatre. 
Jen, have you taken a Lyra yet? Yeah, we did go uh, at Christmas time with uh, with your friend and uh, a few other people, and obviously your friend's child, and all the kids called it Dickman. So that was lovely. I take it you went uh, to see uh, Stickman. Yes, Stickman. Did I not say that? Sorry. No. Yes, we went to see Stickman, and all the kids called it Dickman. So. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we are sportsing like nobody's business. It's so many people's business, Jen. Big business. <laughs> There's a lot of sport, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Hull of a lot of sport. And in Rated or Dated, we're chatting the romance of stalkers. Eat your heart out and tuck your scrotum away, Richard Curtis, oh. as we watch the Farrelly Brothers' 1998 smash hit, There's Something About Mary. But first, alien life forms, woke policing and video action replay. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Still operating in light and dark mode. You're going to have to talk me through this. Is this something to do with X or... It is. Okay. You're the first person I've seen calling it X in the world, Jen. So congratulations. Ahead of the times in many ways. (laughs) Elon Musk has decided, I don't know, on a whim or out of spite or, you know, however it is he decides things, that it's just going to be dark mode in Twitter from now on. And people are pissed off, rightly so. At the moment, I personally do use dark mode. I find it easier to read, but other people find light mode, which is black text on white background. Right. Mm -hmm. Easier to read. And I'm pretty sure there are certain eye conditions that make dark mode quite hard to read, but... Yeah, everybody's going to get dark mode from now on, apparently. I mean, I know there are more important things in the world, but it is bizarre, isn't it? Like, what? Mm. It's just like an enormous dick swinging thing, isn't it? It's not even a competition. No one's competing yeah. with him. He's just swinging his dick. And it's just like, I don't want yeah. to see it, Elon. Put it away. <laughs> get away from me. <laughs> he's one of those people that thinks he's unique, but it's because he actually thinks the rest of us are all just literally the same. Oh, yeah, they all use their phone the same way. They all want the same thing. Yeah. What a wanker. Anyway, Jen, question. Mm. Do you believe in intelligent life on other planets? And I mean this as a genuine question. It isn't the, pun, the like, set up for a joke. Uh, um, I don't know. I've, I, don't, I don't think about it that much, if I'm honest. I spend right. more time thinking about ghosts. Okay, well, fair enough. Do you believe in ghosts? This is off topic, but... Undecided. Okay. Agnostic. Yeah. Well, as listeners probably know, I found out there wasn't a Father Christmas and stopped believing in everything. It just was like, <laughs> everything is a lie. Um, and I, I can't believe in aliens because I haven't seen them. And that is the, you know, the parameters I set myself that either I or someone I trust has to say to me, this is the thing. I don't know enough about the universe to know whether it's possible. So, yeah... Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because rather unbelievably or or maybe believably, depending on which side of this argument you come down, the House of Representatives held a committee hearing on UFOs, actually technically called UAPs, Unidentified Anomalous, uh, I want to say projectiles, but it's probably not the right word. But anyway, we're going to call them UFOs. Well, is that because that's how they identify or is, or is there a reason? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think maybe the word UFO has become ridiculous. So perhaps they're trying to okay. make it slightly more serious by calling it a UAP. But anyway, that committee meeting took place last week in America and we heard several claims that aliens absolutely do come to visit us on Earth. 
One of the witnesses, David Grush, is a former intelligence official who repeated his claims made in recent months that the US is in possession of, quote, intact and partially intact alien vehicles. He also said that for many decades, the US government had been attempting to reverse engineer alien spacecraft, which sounds quite dangerous, right? Yeah. Well, indeed, Grush said that people had not only been harmed in the attempt, but also that some had been, quote, harmed or injured by Pentagon. I couldn't even say that without my my cynicism underpinning that statement. Anyway, by the Pentagon and its attempts to cover up such activities. He also claimed that non-human biologics had been found at crash sites. I wish... Readers could see the the picture that is Jen's face (laughs) as she's learning from me about aliens. Grush wasn't the only witness at the hearings, though. The committee also heard from David Fravor, a former Navy commander who claimed to have seen a strange object in the sky while on a training mission in 2004. And Ryan Graves, a retired Navy pilot who claimed that he saw a UAP off the Atlantic coast, quote, every day for at least a couple of years. I mean, it's a wonder he doesn't have any actual evidence of this other than his eyes. But moving on, Jen, has any of that information changed your mind even slightly? I don't don't know what my mind was in the first place, Hannah, but I'd say I'll uh, approach this with a degree of scepticism. Well, let's ask a few key questions. You are correct. Did the committee see any actual evidence of these claims? Well, no. Grush said he'd not actually seen the alleged spacecraft himself, but had spoken to lots of people who had. And on a number of occasions, he cited security concerns, which left him unable to answer several questions. Sounds quite convenient, doesn't it? Why are they having a committee on this if he can't disclose any of his evidence? (laughs) Well, the committee, let's look at them. That came about largely thanks to the efforts of two Republican representatives, Tim Burnett of Tennessee and Anna Paulina Luna of Florida, both of whom believe that the government has been attempting to cover up knowledge of UFOs since the 1940s. What else do they believe? Checks notes that Donald Trump won the last (laughs) US election. (laughs) So, returning to the original question, is there intelligent life on other planets? Maybe the real issue should be making sure there is intelligent life in the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, I mean, perfect face, Jed. Are there elected representatives who believe that Donald Trump won the last election? The conspiracy calls are very much coming from within the building. It's really clear. Yeah. Fucking hell, what is wrong with the world? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe our alien overlords will come down and get us out of this. I obviously would. Like, I look at people like Nadine Dorries and I think, like, how is this happening? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, how how have you risen to a position of power? Someone said to me the other day, they're talking about Pretty Patel, and they found her strangely alluring. Did they find intelligent life on her? (laughs) I said, "Is is it her superior intellect that does it for you anyway and they said oh she's very smug she always looks really pleased with herself and I thought well I'd look pleased with myself if I didn't understand the 
sequential nature of numbers, but had nonetheless risen <laughs> to the rank of foreign secretary. Yeah, so very good point, Jen. Well made. Anyway, Hannah. Yes. If I ask you what your understanding of the word woke in inverted commas is, what would you say? I would say that words don't have meaning anymore, Jen. Fair. Just, yeah. I mean, words just mean what the person <laughs> saying them decides they mean. I've, I've come to that conclusion. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to clear this up right now for the avoidance of doubt. Now, some suggest the origins of woke came from as early as the 1860s, but certainly by the 1920s and 30s, the term was being used among mm. African-American communities, right? Yep. And basically it meant alert or awake to racial prejudice and discrimination. It gained mainstream use in the 2010s, particularly in relation to the Black Lives Matters movement, but it's kind of co-opted to mean an advocate for social justice or more broadly aware of societal injustices, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think actually it was used that way as early as the 60s, actually. Okay. Yeah. So as the interminable culture wars roll on, woke has obviously taken on a new meaning and it has irritated me a bit that not being racist has come to be some sort of insult bandied around by politicians, the media and various public figures simply because, let's face it, it is easier to point at something over there than, for example, being better at running a country or reporting on poor running of a country or protecting one's own massive amounts of privilege. Let's look at this week's Mail on Sunday then to examine how utterly ridiculous this misappropriation of the word has become with the publication of its 2023 woke list. Which I suppose is like a rich list or a power list or whatever, but just like nice people. Well, jury's out, but anyway. (laughs) Oh yeah, there's a couple of real cunts on there. I will say that. The list focuses on various sections of society, including showbiz, police and law, and singles out those who have demonstrated too much awareness of social issues. And if you're wondering how on earth anyone from the Metropolitan Police came to be included on this list, don't worry, the criteria wasn't did not do enough raping. Mm. No. Assistant Commissioner Matt Jukes had the temerity to wear a heated vest to try and gain better understanding of the experience of menopausal women. What an absolute cunt, eh? Yeah, yeah. Other examples are more obvious. Gary Lineker, Emily Maitlis, Emma Watson, two men of colour, Sadiq Khan and Humza Youssef, are singled out as politicians and stop the press, Mary Bolter the Joint General Secretary of a Trade Union, the National Education Union, is also a bit too bothered about social inclusion. I mean, I do identify, politically speaking, with the left, right? But fair play, there are some lefties who are A, fucking annoying, and B, pretty (laughs) inconsistent when it comes to pointing out social injustices, right? Yeah. There are some people on this list who I do think are fucking annoying as well. But I have to say, I think the jig is up when we are railing against leaders of Christianity in this country. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and the Archbishop of York, Steve Cottrell, for being too tolerant. Yeah. What the actual fuck? Yeah, I mean, the church famous for its positive attitude towards women and homosexuals. Yeah. 
You're absolutely right. They have obviously in a variety of ways been absolute bastards. But we should be looking to religion or religious leaders, I think, as as a voice of tolerance and inclusion. Oh, I mean, yes, uh, from that point of view, if you believe that stuff. Yeah. If you, if you actually believe, as we're supposed to believe that sort of the Daily Mail does. Yeah. You know, it's the Christian church is values. Good and nice yeah. and yeah, yeah, Christian values. Yeah. Uh, that therefore, you know, yeah preaching forgiveness or reconciliation and stuff like that yeah yeah i agree it's just how to fill two pages in uh, or, or i'm guessing it was a spread you know yep. in the summer silly season <laughs> basically yeah yeah it, it is utterly ridiculous jen after that are you braced for a bit of good news yes please well earlier this month that's july as we're recording a new report from UN AIDS, which I'm slightly embarrassed to say I read as unAIDS for ages, shows what it describes as a clear path to ending AIDS. The report contains data and case studies highlighting that eradicating AIDS is what it describes as, quote, a political and financial choice, and that the countries already following the path are achieving extraordinary results. Botswana, Eswatini, Rwanda, the United Republic of Tanzania and Zimbabwe have already achieved 95, 95, 95 targets. What that means is that 95% of the people who are living with HIV know they've got HIV. 95% of the people who know they've got HIV are being given life-saving antiretroviral treatment. And 95% of the people who are on the treatment are being virally suppressed. A further 16 other countries, eight of them in sub-Saharan Africa, the region which accounts for 65% of all people living with HIV, are also close to doing so. The end of AIDS is an opportunity for a uniquely powerful legacy for today's leaders, said Winnie Bayayimi, Executive Director of UNAIDS. She continued, they could be remembered by future generations as those who put a stop to the world's deadliest pandemic. They could save millions of lives and protect the health of everyone. They could show what leadership can do. That seems really positive. Yeah. Let's see how positively it's acted on. Yeah. Let's see if they are making a good political and financial choice. Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where women can't fill stadiums, but only if we know it's women playing football in them. (laughs) Okay, so for a start, that's not true. Women can fill stadiums. They are filling stadiums right now over in Australia and New Zealand during the Women's World Cup. More on that later. But World Cups are always a good time for some red-faced dudes to get angry about assertions such as women should be paid the same as men or women are good at football. Now, look, I've got no problem if women want to play football, but they're not as good at it as men. They can't kick the ball as far, run as fast, block a goal, etc., etc. You will no doubt have heard the case made. Mm. So thank you to Caroline Criado-Perez and her Invisible Women newsletter for alerting me to a study that found that, in fact, people do not think women are less skillful than men in terms of the beautiful game when they don't know it's women playing <laughs> football. 
In a recent study by researchers at the University of Zurich, participants were shown videos from men's and women's domestic and international matches in 2019 that were between 5 and 14 seconds long. All the videos were from either the World Cup or Champions League, so the creme de la creme of football. And they featured players such as Alex Morgan, Raheem Sterling and Luka Modric. So again, the creme de la creme of footballers. However, the video frames were manipulated to obscure the player's gender. And guess what the study found? I mean, I've already told you, but basically, (laughs) those who watched the unblurred videos rated women's performance significantly lower than those who watched the blurred videos, who did not rate the performances differently. Wow. Yeah. What can we conclude then? Well, according to the report, these findings support our hypothesis that the perception of quality in women's soccer is influenced by gender beliefs imprinted in the industry. Several factors have been noted that have long served to reinforce stereotypes and perpetuate the revenue gap between women's and men's soccer, including a history of discrimination, fandom, development, investment and coverage. So, Hannah, I make that women's football one, sexism nil. Too right. Did you see that orange advert from France? No. It's an advert that Orange have made for the World Cup in France. So either they're sponsoring it or they're just, you know. Interesting on two fronts, eh? Because it's women's sport and also because it's probably the only good use of, like, deep fake video that I've ever seen. And they basically take a, a French women's game... And they deep fake the men's players over it. And the men's players are playing it. And it looks fantastic. And then they remove it. And you can see that this football match that people have been watching is actually a women's game. Yeah, it's clever. Sounds like a good advert. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by actor, writer and director of award-winning theatre and human projection space, Larissa Faber. Larissa, hello. Hello. And I'm also joined by theatre maker Shamira Turner. Shamira, hello. Hello, thanks for having us. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. So, Larissa, your play, Start Bollock Naked, is at the Edinburgh Fringe this year as part of the first ever Luxembourgish selection. How representative of theatre from Luxembourg are you? Well, I was actually born in Romania. I grew up in Luxembourg. And this is very new because... In Luxembourg, you are in the in the sort of lovely situation where many things are still happening or being made that other countries have experienced before. So the Luxembourgish Arts Council was created only two years ago. They are at the service of artists. And because more and more people are studying or have studied in the UK, more artists in Luxembourg work in English. This is the first time that they have decided to invest into the Edinburgh Fringe and to do a call out for people to apply who who want to go. Incredible. I can't get over the phrase, at the service of artists. More of that, please. (laughs) Yes, right? I mean, we'll see how they do. (laughs) It's a work in progress. But for now, they're fine. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's good to stay cynical. It's good to stay cynical. So tell us about Start Bollock Naked and the roles that both of you play in that. Stark Bollock Naked is a multimedia tragic comedy about reproductive shelf life, the pressure of the biological clock and abortion stigma. And it's life scored using gynecological instruments such as the speculum. So if you've ever been to the gynecologist and felt this uh, metal sharpness of our dear frenemy, the speculum, then you will know what we're doing. 
and we also use intricate video mapping on the body. And Shamira plays the speculum, amongst other things. That must be a dream come true for any woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite interesting to get your hands on it in a way and figure out how to sort of manipulate it and how to make music and underscoring. So in a way, Larissa and I on stage were sort of the two parts of this of this person's story. And so that means there's text, but there's also sonic textures and and percussive elements and rhythm and singing. So it, it sort of expands the languages on stage. But yeah, definitely rooted in everything feels like it would live in a gynecology practice. But then there's a little twist because we then become something else, and uh, which sounds really silly. And is, I guess it is silly, and we love the silly is uh, that uh, we turn into the brain, the protagonist's brain. So we, we turn out to be the left and the right brain hemispheres. You packed it all in. Well, the last time I went for a smooth test, weirdly, I, I could not stop giggling because the speculum was really creaky. And I was like, oh. is that the speculum or is that my vagina? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right, but did you have a metal speculum or a plastic speculum? I think it was a plastic one, but I'm old enough mm. to have experienced the, I think you called it a nasty metal duck. And I was like, yes, that is exactly what it is. It really is. It is, it is a kind of a little, a little bit like a, a medieval torture instrument, mm. I find. I don't know. If and this it was invented su- by a man. I was just about <laughs> to say, I don't know if this will surprise you, but it was invented by a man. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> so, Larissa, this is this is a play that you've written. What made you want to talk about the biological clock? Have you heard it's TikToking? Oh God, I have <laughs> so loudly it was incessant. Well, I feel like a little bit like I became a cliche when I turned thirty, because suddenly I felt this pressure. It, it was like in a cartoon: you turn thirty, you're starting to expire. Do something now, <laughs> and I couldn't quite understand why this happened to me. An independent woman, yeah. you know? <laughs> Why is this happening to me? A rational, independent woman who has got her shit together and is, you know, out there to make a career and, and I don't care about biology and biology does not own me because, because you know, hashtag girl boss and everything. And then it turned <laughs> out that biology does own me. And I found it, I mean, jokes aside, I did find it quite disconcerting, weird. And, and it is, I think... A situation where you realize you don't maybe have as much control over certain aspects of your life as you think because maybe intellectually we are given the impression that we have made huge strides and we have obviously as women in terms of women's rights but there is still this thing of biology uh-huh. i mean you can intellectualize it as much as you want but it is just there you know you your body is aging and that means something biologically yes and you totally. have to make a choice and I found it's not just a conversation that's happening in your own head. Suddenly, like my experience of turning 30, it unlocks this conversation that's apparently fine for anybody to have with you to ask you, so are you having kids? And that's really strange because you're sort of partly thinking about playing out the social expectation. Like you can't always fully get into the dilemma of that question with, with some family member who's asking quite lightly. But there's a part of me that actually finds it really invasive and uh, nerve-wracking as a question especially when you kind of think well hang on this isn't it's not like I can make this decision in isolation from all the other mess in the world and in my life and all of the other things about how I'm living as a person I still feel like I don't know how to look after myself properly 
why on earth would it be an okay question to ask me if I'm going to start looking after some other like tiny creature that can't fend for itself? So yeah, it's sort of manic that you just, it suddenly becomes okay for people to ask you. And then I've noticed heading of, you know, after a few years, these questions, they drop off a bit. And it's like people <laughs> begin to see a few wrinkles forming and they just think, oh, yes, maybe it's not so okay to start asking these quite I don't know. It's just interesting actually moving through people stopping asking me. And uh, that's kind of liberating, but also I'm, I'm reflecting on that. <laughs> Shamira, it is invasive and it is not okay to ask that question. I'm just going to, you know, in, in your defense, in, in women's defense, I don't think anyone is pleased when they are asked that question because we don't know anyone else's situation or, or why they've not got kids, why they might not want kids, why they can't have kids, all of that. And I recognize my own fury in Larissa's answer as well because part of me with that external pressure was very much I'm like am I actually hearing this or have I been groomed to think I'm hearing this as I've hit a certain age? Yes absolutely. Did you guys also maybe feel this thing where you've been defining yourself in relation to your work? Your worth was tied up to your work. That's how I felt. I felt as long as I did good work, you know, even like having good grades, it sort of starts with school and university. And I really defined myself, my identity was tied up in my work. And so having potentially a child would take me away from that. And who am I even if I don't spend all of my energy on work? Mm. I couldn't imagine like the the amount of sort of um, emotional investment, imaginative time and, and just unpaid labor that goes into making a theater show. I can't imagine yet what that would look like for me as I'm not I'm not a mother, I don't have children, but it's definitely something that I think about just I don't know how it would change the amount of time and energy that I can give to my practice. So I'm always really curious and I'm like craving examples of how people like what family making looks like when people kind of have the sort of like lifestyle and work obsession commitments that I have those are thin on the ground so that's why like Larissa's actually really inspiring in a way but it's, it's still <laughs> sorry listeners couldn't see Larissa's absolutely horrified face at that <laughs> but it's so rare to find theatre makers who have you know have babies and there's just so many problems to do with childcare and it being a conversation that it's not welcome can't really be had it's very it's very recent actually there's Pippa the um, parents in the performing arts campaign and they're trying to raise awareness and whatever's happening in that conversation applies to all work and the idea of all people having a career and working and earning and having a child. And it's just, in this case, it's specific to problems if you are working in the performing arts, but it's applicable to to any any work from that anecdotally I understand from other parents. That's very kind of you to say, Shamira. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, so first of all, spoiler alert, the biological clock, the pressure did get to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> She succumbed. She succumbed to the TikToking. I did. I did succumb. And I, I don't feel that I'm doing very well because I actually don't think that. I, I think when you see people who do manage that, now I feel like I always want to question very specifically how. Because I also found like I looked at certain people in the arts, especially I, I, I remember this one director who's a real workaholic. And when she had her child, she went back to work. I think three weeks after giving birth, you know, having her newborn with her in the rehearsal room and everything. And I thought, oh my God, 
this is it, girl boss. Yeah. I'm going to be like you, you know. Fuck all the other ones, you know. They're just weak, weaklings, weak methods. How dare they? Do you know what I mean? Like, what are they moaning about? And then it turned out, I mean, I was just completely destroyed. Like, physically, mentally, it just completely knocked me out, you know. And like I told you, I'm still incontinent two years later. Do you know what I mean? Like, my body and my mental health is literally at, at the very bottom of my to-do list. Because otherwise, I will not be able to pack in the work. So something has got to give. And you sort of have to then question, well, how does this person do it? What kind of help do they have from home? Uh-huh. And a financial background are they from? Yeah. Also, what kind of resilience do they just have as a human? What sort of resources do they have mentally and otherwise, physically as well? So, um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a reality check. It's a huge question. It's a huge issue and one that, you know, certainly our government in the UK doesn't seem inclined to tackle in the slightest. I interviewed Lorraine Candy, who used to edit Cosmopolitan when it was at the height of its powers. And she said, we were sold the message, women can have it all. And what we heard is women can do it all or women should do it all, right? <laughs> God, and a hundred percent. We say that it Shalila yeah. sings it. Women can have it all. We sing it in the play because that's absolutely it. Do you remember, this is a, a while ago, this was still Angela Merkel's government, one of her politicians, and I think it was the um, foreign affairs, um, it's not foreign affairs, what you call them in the UK? Not home secretary, the one. The foreign secretary. Foreign secretary. Yes, the one in charge of not domestic, but international things. Ursula von der Leyen. Right. I'm so sorry. I apologize to everyone German listening. But Ursula, she is a mother of, I think, seven or something crazy like that. Everyone was like, how do you do it, Ursula? And she was like, yeah, I mean, you know, you can do it all if you want to. And I was like, yeah, you go, Ursula. And I'm like, how did you do it, Ursula? Because you cannot have it all. So how did you do it? That's really, that's kind of really oppressive. And it's very clever marketing because it feels like, well, if we all understand that you can do it all, because here's some examples of some people who are doing it all. Then if you can't, the problem is to do with you. It's like an agency problem rather than a structural problem. And so then it's like the the sort of self-shame of, oh, if I can't do it all, it's because I'm not good enough. Yeah. I think that kind of, uh, like, talking out loud, I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. But that sort of, like, internal fear and dialogue going on, that's definitely something I recognize. And I think that kind of, it's a barrier where I can't even get past that to work out, what do I actually, what, what would I actually like? What do I actually want and why? Because I'm so preoccupied with the idea of, of failing and not understanding how it would work and not seeing around me that structure for for childcare, not seeing around me an obvious way that it would work. And I'm like, well, oh, is that me procrastinating and finding a way to avoid actually moving on to the next stage of the question, which is, do I want to do this thing? And then do I want to make the sacrifices to do this thing? By thing, I mean try and have a baby. kid. Baby, yeah, I call them baby. things as well. It's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your play pokes fun at all of the assumptions and projections society has about female bodies. How did you manage to keep it to just an hour? Well, <laughs> yes, um, I don't know. I mean, it's actually under an hour. Wowzers! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we are very quick. We speak very fast. <laughs> we talked about this last night before you were getting the bus. So true, yes, yeah, of course. You mean what the what the French guy said? Well, yeah, we just we want to use the audience's time well, and yes. we want you to leave the party wanting a bit more. And I think that it's interesting actually 
to make something as as efficient and and um, reduced as it can be, and not put in this extra potential scene, because you can let the audience insert themselves into those conversations and have those conversations in the bar afterwards. Yes, that was wonderful, Tremere. Oh, that was amazing. I think you need to to phone Christopher Nolan and talk to him about Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think you should absolutely give him a ring. So, Stark Bullet Naked also deals very candidly with abortion, which is brilliant. Yes, please. What are the abortion laws in Luxembourg? So, in Luxembourg, you can have uh, the um, medical abortion, which means taking those pills until week seven. Week and then, seven? <laughs> yes. So, it's very, very brief. early. Two yeah. pills until week yes. seven. Yeah. Blimey. And then uh, you, ha- you can have the surgical abortion until week 12. So pretty strict then. It's pretty strict, yes. And what they're trying to do now, some feminist groups are, are lobbying for to for the next government, because there'll be elections in October, to include abortion rights in the constitution. So it's similar to what is happening in the discussions that are happening now in France, uh-huh. where Macron is now on board, and now they're just sort of faffing about the language. But interestingly enough, even though it is legal in Luxembourg, it doesn't mean it's necessarily accessible. It doesn't mean that gynecologists are necessarily on board. And actually, for this organization, Planned Parenthood, which you also have in France, they are having trouble recruiting gynecologists willing to provide abortion care. So it's it's actually it's actually quite... Um, there is really this discrepancy between the law and then having accessibility to it. Why would you take a job in women's healthcare, gynecology, and then not care about women's health and bodily autonomy? I mean, 100%, right? I met this one woman who put it so, so well. She said, it's called gynecology, not babyology. <laughs> yes. 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 Right? Wow. It, it makes no sense. It's like me wanting to be an actor, but then I'm like, I'm not going to learn lines. Yeah. Yeah. Selective. Like, you're right. It's also it's a, that's a it's a sneaky hierarchy where the baby is placed at the at the top of the pyramid, yes. whereas it's it's women's reproductive health. Absolutely, or that our autonomy over our bodies. Yeah, it's this is it's it's really disturbing actually when you get into the sort of psychology motivating those sort of choices. And I had a question for you, Larissa, about the financial side of the healthcare system in Luxembourg. How does that work? Is it like for, we have the NHS still? Oh, God bless um, it. In England. God bless it. Keep <laughs> fighting for it, people. <laughs> exactly, which is um, sort of an um, unlikely miracle. But how does it work here? So here generally, so it's like your, your national insurance. It's mm-hmm. just much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So we are taxed higher. Mm-hmm. When you go to, to the doctor, you pay for, for the consultation and then you get a refund. Oh, okay. So essentially the different services, healthcare services are labelled so they have a, like a number, you know, in the system. And interestingly enough, abortion doesn't have one. So there are no official statistics for abortion. It is labeled something else. And also, if you go to a gynecologist for an abortion, you have to pay. Mm-hmm. And it's something along the lines of 300 euros or something like that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure on the figure, so don't quote me. But it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a service that you pay for. And if you go to Planned Parenthood, it's free. Whoa. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm excited and hopeful for the time when women are seen as fully human. Let's hope it happens <laughs> maybe in our lifetime. Maybe in your lifetime, I'm a bit older. I mean, do you really think so? I'm also, I mean, I'm also, you know, middle age is right there. It's just, you know, knocking on my door. It's I have so no hope. depressing. 
so depressing yeah. and so it's it's so lovely and I think important that you are treating these very serious topics with humour. You're addressing them with humour. You're making it funny. You're making it accessible because I think a lot of people are like, oh God, this is going to be heavy. But it's not. And so therefore, I want you to tell me a little bit more about being a human projection space and playing a speculum. (laughs) Being a human projection space, that idea was there from the very beginning when I started writing. It kind of came to me because... At the heart of it, I guess, is it's this question of where do all of these expectations come from? What has been projected on me and what have I absorbed? Mm -hmm. And why do so many people, politicians, institutions, whatever, have a point of view on this body? Where does all of that come from? And I I just thought, let's strip it all away because I really feel like the, the body is such a commonplace, boring thing. There are billions of us. We all have one. It should be the most boring thing ever. And yet it is loaded with so many things, with shame and guilt and expectations and so on. So I wanted to strip it of all of that and to project something else on it, whatever I wanted to. Great answer. And click, click, ting, ting, ouch. Uh, Tell me more about being a speculum. (laughs) Well, exactly. I mean, it takes these sort of scary instruments that you only see in that context of going to the gynecology practice and maybe you're feeling anxious and nervous and we reclaim them and (laughs) we're really hands-on and we have fun with them and I think that the sonic palette of it means that you get a sense of the biological clock pounding us tick 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 with these tongs and you know there's bandages and splashing but it's mainly metal the quality of sound and so I think it's sort of about again like taking these these tools and then using them in a different way seeing them from a new perspective so Star Bullet Naked is at Assembly Roxy every day except Tuesdays at 3pm until August the 28th. Larissa, where can people find out more, please? So they can go to Assembly's website and just type in the name of the show, Star Bullet Naked. They can find more on my Instagram at larissa.faber, Larissa with one S. And they can find more on Shamira's Instagram at Shiminira. Nice. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with that. And then more on the French Society website. Brilliant. And are you taking it anywhere after Edinburgh? We're hoping to. So this show has had quite a long life because the first work in progress sharing we did at Camden People's Theatre in London was in 2019. Wow. And then we did the full production premiered also at Camden People's Theatre in 2021. And then we had two runs in Luxembourg. We had a run at Vault Festival where we were nominated for this award. So it has had, the show has already had quite quite a, a life before going to the fringe which I think is is good at least you know mentally for me it feels comforting you know you're not going into this beast that is the Edinburgh fringe trying something very vulnerable you know exposing yourself you literally literally yeah. <laughs> but you've, already, you've already done it you know what I mean like I, I used to think early on in uh, early versions of the show you know just before going on stage I used to think why are you doing this to yourself you know just go home just put some knickers on and lie down on a couch and, you know, watch Netflix and just forget put about it. Put some knickers on and go home. <laughs> no, go to the Edinburgh Fringe and listeners, go see them. Larissa Shamira, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Samantha Lane, Artistic Director of Little Angel Theatre. Thank you so much for joining me, Samantha. Thank you for having me. 
so the school holidays are coming and it's going to be a lot of people thinking oh what am I going to do with my kids I've been to every single museum within traveling distance what am I going to do with my kids but there's also going to be a lot of people thinking I don't think that my kid would sit through a theatre production so as the expert in children's theatre here I would like to ask you what is your audience like how do they behave and what happens if they don't like it that's such a great question, which nobody's ever asked me before. Children are the best audiences in the world because they are the most honest audiences in the world. So if you've made something that they don't like, they will let you know. <laughs> but if you've made something that in- entertains them and they find it funny, they're enraptured and, and it shows on their faces. Or it shows sometimes by the fact that, you know, particularly with really, really young children, that they might comment on what's happening or, you know, narrate to their parents as they're watching. You know, and for me, whenever I make a show, I spend the entire preview period not watching the show, which is probably the complete opposite of what people do in adult theatre, where they were watching the show and making sure the actors are doing what they do. I watch the audience because I'm an adult, I'm a grown up and I'm making work for children. And so I kind of need to see how they're responding and are there bits where they are fidgeting and they're not engaged and how are they responding? And therefore that will inform what I change. It's glorious because when you've got them, you've got them. It's one of the most rewarding things in the world. But you know, when you haven't, they'll let you know. They really will. They're honest. I know a couple of people who do stand up for kids. Then you've actually got some interaction going on they're actually saying things back to you and it sounds horrific to me but they both absolutely love it I mean it's really interesting as well because quite often we obviously have quite a lot of big school groups coming in to watch shows at at Little Angel and quite often when the kids are really engaged they might start shouting things at the performers or talking to each other and obviously the teachers are all going shh shh and I'm showing no disrespect to teachers here whatsoever we've grown up in a society where we've all been told that when you go to the theatre you're quiet, you sit still and you watch what's happening on stage. And obviously we've had all the controversy recently around people singing along to Mm. musicals and what audience behaviour should be like. But for me, I'm like, if they're talking and they're shouting at the performer, they're in it, they're in the moment. And I know that they're engaged and it's okay. Uh, It really is okay. But it feels, I guess, at odds with grown-up or adult theatre, for want of a better word. Yeah. We're talking about some quite young children you do theatre for. In fact, The Bed, which is among your... You've just announced your autumn winter season, and The Bed, which is based on a poem by Sylvia Plath. You've actually got one that is for children aged 6 to 18 months. I mean, that that sounds like chaos. I mean, it is. What's really, really interesting with a show like that is developmentally, you know, a six-month-old is incredibly different to an 18-month-old. It was incredibly different to a a three-year-old. But actually, in terms of, you know, in terms of creating that show, it uses quite a lot of Frobelian principles. If you're not aware of Frobel, he's an early years educator who uh, kind of pioneered the kindergarten, but has a lot of principles around how the work uh, works. so we've really looked at what it means in terms of child development and how different senses engage the children. And, you know, with a show like that, you might get a six month old watching the show uh, with their mouth open and staring at everything that's happening for the full 35 minutes. Mm. But they also might want to wander or giggle or whatever. And I think that for me, I always have kind of a bit of an ethos that if you if we've got them for 80 percent of the time success, they might, uh, I don't know, be interested in tapping their mum's knee or um, pulling the dummy off of a fellow baby or whatever but if something in the performance pulls them back then you've got if you've got them for 80 percent of the time then you've made a show that that they feel that they can engage with and I think the great thing about the bed is that 
it absolutely does utilize all of the senses they watch something they there's beautiful soundtrack that goes alongside it it uses kind of symbolism in terms of object manipulation it's you know highly visual it's got amazing lighting as well it's very sensory there's lots of touch a lot of things get kind of pulled out and the, and, and the children get to touch and feel them so it's not like going to a traditional theater mm. show and sitting sort of quietly on your bottom and having to watch it's 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 immersive in that sense and it also has a stay and play afterwards where the children play with a, a treasure basket, which was developed by a practitioner called Elena Goldschmeid, who was actually a Frobelian disciple, if you like. It's all about touching and feeling and, and connecting that to the development of the child and the child's age. So, you know, a lot of thought goes into where children sit developmentally, also acknowledging that they are actually different developmentally from mm. six months through to three one of my questions I was going to ask you and you've sort of started to answer it there was what is the benefit of getting children into theatre I mean the obvious benefit for theatre is that you're opening the doors and hopefully they will stick with it and stay as theatre goers but you must know some stuff about how good it is for children to uh, sit through a show it's absolutely about fueling the imagination seeing what's possible And I think we, again, without getting too political, but we have an education system here where, you know, we encourage our children to learn by rote and they sit on their bottoms and don't necessarily kind of learn the ability to be creative in terms of the way that they work. And I think, you know, by opening eyes at an incredibly young age to the possibilities of the imagination and what that what that involves hopefully like we have something called a watch make share ethos at little angel where hopefully you'll watch something that might encourage you to make something yourself whatever that is and that you'll want to share that it's about creative thinking skills this is incredibly anecdotal but you know i know google i think it was was complaining that that you know lots of graduates now done incredibly well in all of their exams but none of them think creatively Mm. i think the arts can play a huge role in plugging that gap i guess where education is failing yeah absolutely Rishi Sunet's talking about the value of maths and not the value of art at the minute. I did all right with my maths GCSE, but to think that I'd have to have gone on to do it at A-level, I mean, seriously. I mean, I work with budgets all of the time. Part of my job is when a show's going to recoup. If it was sort of maths in the real world, fine. But, Mm. you know, quadratic equation, I don't know. You know, what what does that even mean? You know, No idea. I do know I never, ever, ever needed to estimate the height of our school gym ever ever again (laughs) I don't even know if I got it right the first time a fair plank of your stuff is Julia Donaldson and (laughs) Axel Scheffler stuff what do you think the magic in that is because it is undoubtedly unbelievably popular I mean she's the queen of rhyme isn't she I think that particular marriage between Julia and Axel is incredible. You know, she writes some incredible words and he illustrates them beautifully. That's not to suggest that other illustrators that work with Julia don't, but that particular marriage is really, really very magical. You know, I absolutely adore Axel's illustrations and I just, I feel like the work, it's got something to say, but not in a kind of didactic way at Mm. all. I mean, you know, Charlie Cook's favourite book, which is the show that we're about to adapt, is absolutely just about the joy and the pleasure of reading. And, you know, there's so much out there at the moment around around how reading for pleasure is. I think there was a study recently about how it um, improves brain health and yeah. um, children's mental health and just something that is simple. And she wrote this 18 years ago. This is, a you know, this isn't something she wrote yesterday. Yeah. Um, but it's that, you know, that joy and that celebration. But all of her all of her books are so are joyful with a, with a sort of very kind of lovely underlying messages. I mean, we also adapted The Smartest Giant in Town, which is going to be on in the West End again this Christmas. And that's, you know, again, it's just about the, about being kind. 
it's just got a lovely message but it's just told in a really lovely way it's just got a gorgeous narrative yeah now talking about messages can we talk about the welcome project which is something yes. that you are doing this is something that that our community education manager Catherine is uh, developing developing it in partnership with phosphorus theater and she's working with young children from our local community who are from asylum seeker migrant backgrounds and they are co-creating a show really kind of feeding into what this final show will look like that is going to then tour to bridging hotels um, across the country. And and the theme of it is about welcoming, about welcoming people. So it's called The Welcome Project because it's absolutely about saying to people, you know, if you're new to uh, our country and you're new here, how do we make you feel welcome? And everyone around us um, joining in with the work that we do, regardless of how new they are to, to our local community. You know, we live in London. It's a transient community. People are coming in and out of our community all of the time. But we have an incredibly, what I call an inch wide, mile deep philosophy in that we really want to work very closely with those who are around us. And, and, and that's new people coming in all the time. How yeah. do we say to them that you're welcome? How do we open up our doors to people who, you know, got a million other things that they might be concerned about right now? Maybe they don't want to come see a, a, a theatre show but but maybe there's a way that we can welcome them in a different way that is about taking that work out to them I mean we have a whole strand of work where we think about you know not everybody will want to come to our theatre or can come to our theatre so how is it that we can take that work out and with this particular project it's absolutely about taking the idea of of wanting people to feel welcome in our community and how we can then share that that idea of, of welcoming others more widely. Okay, so that's going to be on in London and in Manchester. Yes. But you are taking some other stuff on tour. So you are all over the UK coming up. Yes. Tell me about what you're touring with. So we are touring our current show that's on at Little Angel at the moment called Wow Said the Owl, which is a gorgeous show. It's an adaptation of a Tim Hopgood book. And it's a stunning show that kind of celebrates a little owl who usually sleeps through the night time, waking up and seeing what it's like by daylight and kind of experiencing the colours of the world. It's a lovely show. And that's that's touring across the, the country in the in the autumn and also a show that we created last year called Little Angel Theatre's Miniature Travelling Circus which again is a lovely show that brings the kind of the joy of circus small scale circus to children and families it has lots of interactive elements so again it goes back to that that what we were talking about earlier about kind of there's a real opportunity for children to engage and get yeah. stuck in and, and interact with the show not just kind of sit back passively and that's going off on tour as well and then we've got including the two shows at our own venue two shows in our own venue we've also got five other shows on at various different places over Christmas as well so yeah lots going on very much think of ourselves as a, an intimate theatre with a, a real um, kind of local feel but with a nationwide reach as well what sort of size venues do you do because that's another interesting thing about you know some children particularly children who were born over lockdown aren't necessarily mm. au fait with crowds absolutely well i mean our own venues are both very intimate so we have our theater which is uh, on dagmar passage which is a gorgeous converted temperance hall uh, which has a, a capacity of 90 and uh, you know it's got an incredibly intimate feel and i don't know if you've ever been to the theater but it's dagmar passage which is just set back from upper street and it's kind of this 
gorgeous little oasis that you know a lot of people don't even realize is there and it's it's lovely so you know as a first theater experience it is incredibly uh, incredibly intimate and equally our studio space it's a bigger venue but it also houses a, a workshop space um, for running community and education events and also a, a workshop for making puppet but it's got a studio space there as well which has a capacity of 70 and so both of our spaces are incredibly intimate and most of the shows that we create that go out on tour go to small scale spaces other studio spaces in other theatres but also we take them into schools and into libraries so usually it is is fairly intimate but we have started to expand some of our work to mid to large scale touring so the smartest giant in town which is a show that we co-created with fiery light last year was actually made in our venue and did a 10-week run at our venue but then went off on tour to mid large scale venues i mean the beauty of our studio space is that whilst the capacity is quite small in terms of audience the stage space is quite big actually and is you know is actually bigger than uh, st martin's in the west end believe it or not so we were able to make something in quite an intimate way but allow that to grow onto a larger scale and i think you're quite right the the way that that engagement happens is very different you are further away from the action it isn't quite as intimate in terms of that experience but we we do that with very well-known books and you know you know why adapt a book that's that's one question but you know I think that people are coming to see that show because they expect to see a book that they absolutely love presented to them on stage and so if we didn't reflect Axel's illustrations through our puppets and our set and if we didn't use Julia's words in some way then that would be kind of disingenuous to our audiences Mm. but I think because of that there's sort of that loss of intimacy in that context is fine because because there's already an awareness and a love and a knowledge of the of the story that they're about to see. Yeah, it's a familiar face. Yeah, exactly. And they're just seeing it in a different form. So where can people find out more? They could go to our website, would be the absolute first um, yeah. place, which is littleangeltheatre.com. And that kind of details all of the shows that we've got on coming up and the shows that we've got going out on tour as well. Thank you so much for your time, Samantha. What the listeners won't know, because I'll have cunningly edited this, was that technology was not on our side. Uh-huh. And you've been very patient. Thank you. Uh, thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, where we are administering a sliding tackle against the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. The Women's World Cup is getting spicy at last, and this is where a tournament comes into its own as we reach the end of the group stage. At the time of recording this on Tuesday, there were a couple more groups left to conclude. That will happen on Wednesday morning, but we've already seen some unexpected results. Switzerland topped Group A with Norway close behind, which means New Zealand are off home. I mean, they are already home as joint hosts of the tournament, but it's good news then that Australia managed to scrape through and stay in the competition with a win over Canada. Group B was one of the more exciting groups to conclude, with everything to play for for three of the four teams in their final matches. The Republic of Ireland are out, as I suggested would be the case a few weeks ago, and Nigeria pipped Canada to the post for the second place in the round of 16. They will play... England. I wrote this on Monday and had included the line, would it be unpatriotic to put a fiver on Nigeria, given that Kira Walsh joined our long list of injured players after our 1-0 victory over Denmark? 
But I'm hopping back in here with an update after our 6-1 win over China to laugh at yesterday's me. We looked great today, fucking brilliant, fresh, energetic, imaginative. I may still put a fiver on Nigeria to spread the emotional risk, but... I don't fancy my fiver's chances. Japan thrashed Spain 4-0, which I did not see coming, although they really put a lot of work into their national side ahead of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, so they're not to be underestimated. They will face Norway. Group E was also decided on the final day of action with the USA and Netherlands on four points each after they drew in their match against each other. With Portugal on three points... They were all in with a shout. The eventual result sees Netherlands top Group E and reigning champions USA coming in second. They will most likely face Italy and Sweden respectively, but that is yet to be decided as I record. I feel like the USA have sat back a bit. I wonder if that's a tactical thing to be fresh for the next round. I don't know. Sweden are a decent side though and that will be quite a match. Over in the Netball World Cup, After the first group stage, Australia, England, Jamaica and New Zealand have all topped their group. Scotland and Wales both took two points from that round to progress to the next, while Barbados, Zimbabwe, Singapore and Sri Lanka finished bottom and are effectively out of the competition. England were up against Tonga on Monday morning in their first match of the second round, which they comfortably won. Scotland had a less enjoyable time facing Australia, likewise Wales against New Zealand. If you're listening on Wednesday, you'll know how Scotland fared against Tonga and how England's second match went down against Fiji. Congratulations to Demi Vollering who has won the Tour de France Femme at the first time of asking in her maiden Tour de France. Vollering finished second in the stage eight time trial behind SD Works teammate Marlene Rousseau and ahead of Lottie Kopecky, also her teammate. Grace Brown of Great Britain finished in fourth on the final stage. In the general classification, it didn't look so great for the Brits with only Claire Steeles inside the top 20. Kopecky finished second in the overall classification, while Katerina Niwiadoma finished in third and Animik van Vleuten in fourth. It's a disappointing result for van Vleuten. The 40-year-old reigning champion plans to retire at the end of the season. In terms of teams, it was SD Works who took the spoils with an overall time of 76 hours, 17 minutes and 38 seconds. 12.5 seconds behind them were Canyon Spram Racing. If you dig your cycling, there is plenty more to look forward to as the first ever combined UCI World Championships get underway this week. There'll be road, track, BMX and mountain biking all going on, including paracycling as well. There will be some big names competing for Team GB, including Dame Sarah Story, Bethany Shriver and Katie Archibald, to name a few. It all gets underway at venues across Glasgow and Scotland as of August the 3rd and goes on for 10 days. And You can watch the coverage of that on the BBC. And oh my God, that is not all in cricket. If you're feeling depressed after the ashes, the third season of The 100 gets underway today on Tuesday, as I record, and goes on until the end of the month. I'll talk a bit more about that in the coming weeks. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film that I could have gone my whole life without saying (laughs) did we watch this week? This week I chose a film that I knew was going to piss off Hannah even before she'd watched it because one of the people in it is Lee Evans. Fair to say he's not your favourite, right Hannah? Oh yeah, it's just just a bit too Norman wisdom for me. Uh, He's a lot less sweaty in this though, to be fair. True. And for what it's worth, I think Evans is very good in it, even if his character 
Like most of the characters in the Farrelly Brothers' 1998 sleeper hit, The Something About Mary, is appalling on many different levels. Billed as a romantic comedy with the gross-out humour Peter and Bobby Farrelly are famous for, There's Something About Mary is, more accurately, a tournament of stalkers. (laughs) The implication that obsession is, or at least can be, romantic is a really fucking tricky central conceit to get over. But I've got to admit that I didn't hate this as much as I thought I would, or indeed think I probably should. (laughs) And audiences really didn't hate it 25 years ago, with the film becoming a major box office success, like major, grossing more than $369 million worldwide from its $23 million budget to make it the fourth highest grossing film of 1998. Uh Uh-huh. Working hard to put the gross into gross in there. Critics rated it too, because who doesn't like laughing? Although pretty much all of them included the caveat that the Farrelly Brothers' lowest common denominator humour really shouldn't be funny. And even the Farrelly Brothers themselves seem to know this, with there's something about Mary's tagline stating, warning, the guys who did Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin bring you a love story. The film is recognised by the American Film Institute in 2000's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, coming in at, brace yourself, number 27. Oh, God. And, you thought that was bad, disturbingly, it was nominated for the AFI's 2008 Top 10 Romantic Comedy Films. Luckily, no one watching this would think that anything that happens in it is romantic, right? Right? Well, agreed, yeah. Mm. I mean, I've got, I got a weird view of romance, and even <laughs> I don't think that this is romantic. Cameron Diaz is the titular Mary, with Ben Stiller, Matt Dillon, Lee Evans, sorry again, Hannah, and Chris Elliott, all playing men vying for her affections, and W. Earl Brown as Mary's adored and adoring intellectually disabled brother, Warren. Dan Doherty. Yes, yes. It is a lad's mag come true. The geek gets the girl. But casting Stiller as very hard done to, constantly humiliated, generally nice guy shame about the stalking, Ted <laughs> is, I think, brilliant. But then I am a big Ben Stiller fan. Now, I saw this at the cinema in what was probably my peak trying to be a cool girl phase and remember laughing a lot. Though whether I meant it, well, I don't even think I knew whether I meant it at the time. So yeah. have either of you seen it before? No, I, in fact, I've never seen a Farrelly Brothers film before. Not even seen Kingpin. It's got Woody Harrelson and Bill Murray in it. Yeah, I know. I just, yeah, I just, I, I you know, this. I am a raging cultural snob, <laughs> and uh, I sometimes think on occasions like this, it's yeah, it's a defence mechanism, <laughs> self protection. There she is. Yeah, I don't think I have seen another Farrelly Brothers film either, but I have seen this. I think I would have seen it pretty close to release date but not in the cinema. I think I've only seen it once, but I I can't really remember, to be honest. Okay, okay. The plot. It is 1985, and 18-year-old Ted, that's Ben Stiller, is about to go to the prom with his dream date, Mary Cameron Diaz, when he gets his scrotum stuck in his zip. Oh, there you go. That's the tone. (laughs) The tone is set. It doesn't get any more highbrow than that. Fast forward 13 years, and Ted is still obsessing over Mary, him and every other weirdo. And why wouldn't they be? 
having been scripted by men, she's the cool girl that's hot, mm. gorgeous, kind, clever, talented. Hey, boys, she even likes sport. <gasps> Say what? <laughs> Ted's mate, Dom, that is Chris Elliott, convinces Ted to hire CDPI Pat Healy, Matt Dillon, and a nonce's moustache to track Mary down. But having found her, Pat decides he wants her for himself. Of course he does. He sells a whole load of codswell up to Ted about Mary being a mail-order bride on her way to Japan and uses the boogies planted to find out everything Mary wants in a boyfriend and pretend he's all of it. Bums for Pat, though, because Mary's British architect friend Tucker, Lee Evans, again, sorry, Hannah, pulls the rug out from under his plans by revealing Pat's a fraud and potentially a serial killer. No who else is a fraud? Tucker who's actually a pizza delivery boy called Norman Wisdom. Sorry, no, a pizza delivery <laughs> boy called Norm. And also obsessed with Mary. In the meanwhile, Ted has discovered parts full of hooey and heads to Florida to find Mary for himself. There's a little hiccup with a hitchhiker, a dead body and the police along the way, which means his pal Dom comes to his rescue to bail him out and they both finally make it to Florida and Mary. Ted and Mary immediately start dating. Of course they don't. Immediately just start dating. Pat and Norm join voices to oust Ted, and it turns out Dom is actually Mary's ex, Woogie, who, you guessed it, is still madly in love with her. I cannot stress enough how big the bunny's ears are around in love. Love. No one knows what love is in this film. Despite having a wife, kids, and indeed restraining order against him. Who will Mary choose? Because apparently it has to be one of these fuckers. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's Ted. I can only assume a relationship where one person has been obsessed with the other for the past 13 years will turn out to be healthy and happy. The end. Oh, dear. Okay, let's get that central conceit out of the way first. The stalking. Could you get over it? I mean, no. There's there's one bit where they're at dinner and Ted shows a tiny bit of self-awareness that he is also a stalker. And I think that's the the only... I mean, they talk about all the time about people stalking, but as if as if it's only a bad thing if somebody else is doing it and not if you're doing it. So, no, I, I couldn't. But, to be clear, wasn't my biggest problem with it. <laughs> Interesting. Keep that powder dry, Hannah Dunleavy. Yeah. Jen? I, I mean, there's a lot to get over in this film, isn't there, to be fair? Um, like, <laughs> right from the outset, but I'm sure we'll go into all of that in a bit. Uh no, and I think the thing that comes across in it as well, as you say, Mickey, she is uh, she is a female character written by men, uh-huh. and it's like, of course, all these men are stalking her. Like she almost she almost deserves to be stalked. She's so fucking cool and lovable. Like it's it's utterly ridiculous. Yeah, like it's part of the baggage that comes with being the perfect woman, and she just yeah. has to deal with that shit. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. It did make me wonder, and I'm sorry, Hannah, I just feel like I'm throwing shit after shit after you, like a, like we're in the Kent Sea and bobbing yeah. around in sewerage. But I'm going to mention Love Actually, Soz. Five years later, Love Actually, we've got you dude stood outside with his signs telling his best mate's wife that he loves her. And that isn't even potentially the most problematic relationship in that film. But I wondered if you thought we were seeing less of this idea, the kind of the grand gestures stalking is, you know, you're supposed to be flattered by it in modern TV and cinema. No. <laughs> Definitive no from Jen there. Well, I mean, I'm inclined to believe Jen because I don't watch a lot of stuff that has romantic storylines in it, to be honest. So I wouldn't know. 
But I will say, I think the mood has changed. Do you remember that guy with a piano outside the university mm, in Bristol, um, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And the reaction to that was really clear that loads of people thought it was, well, creepy. So I would hope that at some point that people who, that men who write <laughs> films and TV will realise that it's creepy and stop doing it. But, you know. I mean, I yeah, I think like the public kind of discourse around it has moved on a bit since 1998. Mm. But what I will say is, I've got a few examples actually. A, perfume adverts, always mega creepy. Uh, B, in like actual real life, people still do public proposals, don't they? Which I don't exactly, think is like... Exactly, yeah. I, like, it's not really, it's not really up there with, with, you know, stalking someone, but I think that I, I would deny someone on principle if they did that to me. And also, if we're talking about like stuff on TV or whatever, you is yeah. about like the protagonist is a stalker. And I don't, I, I mean, he's a killer, but yeah, I do think and the murderer, yeah, a, a really awful piece of work. But that, I think that's had four series now, and I think that we are I can't stop watching it. I stopped after series two. Maybe I haven't three. watched series I don't know. four yet. For those who don't know, including me, what the fuck are you talking about? So it's a Netflix series called You. Yeah. Oh, okay, that yeah. makes more and sense. And the protagonist is a stalker, basically. And it's, I, I think, like you know, he is presented as a murderer, but I think we are also supposed to feel a degree of sympathy or something for him, right? Well, he narrates it, so we're sp- yeah. we're in his head the whole time. Yeah. It's like the Dexter thing, you know. It's it's that whole well, he's narrating it, so I feel like I should be seeing the world from his point of view, and we are seeing the world from his point of view. So yeah, I absolutely agree with Jen's definitive no. And while maybe there's a response when that kind of like the piano story was in the newspaper where people were going, oh, no, that is really creepy. There were also a lot of people going, oh, but, you know, he's just, you know, it's a grand gesture. I think there were a lot of people who defended it as well. There was a video circulating just the other day of a guy proposing to uh, a a girl at her graduation ceremony. And, uh, yeah, the audience was clapping. Maybe, possibly, because it's awkward. Yes. I would feel really <laughs> awkward, so I might want something to do. And if everybody else was clapping, I might think. I mean, I wouldn't because they are disgusting public proposals, but yeah. yeah some people yeah. probably love that. And some people probably have said to their partners that explicitly that that is something they would like to happen to them. But it's massively coercive. Let's move on because mm. this is Sorry. what I called our podcast territory, isn't it? We've, we'll talk about this at some future date, I'm sure, <laughs> listeners. I wondered, and I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask, how do you two feel about gross-out comedy? Like, neither of you seen Dumb and Dumber or Kingpin, clearly, but I wondered how you felt about gross-out comedy in general. It's not for me. I'm quite squeamish. I don't, like, I, I don't enjoy it. You don't like silly, do you? I don't love silly. I don't love silly. I mean, I did. I have to admit, there were a few times in this where I honked with laughter, but I felt fucking awful about it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, I don't like gross. Just as a rule, I've quite a yeah weak stomach, as you know. So anything that's you know, let yeah, let's not even talk about anything that's a bit. There's a lot of stuff in. If this. I remind you of the the scrotum trapped in the zipper, <laughs> please stop. Um, <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's gross-out humour isn't for me. That's not to say that there probably isn't something somewhere that I laughed at that was gross-out humour, but it, it, it wasn't this film. It wasn't this film. 
See, now, as a lone defender of this film, with huge caveats, by the way, I think it is very silly and very gross out, but I quite like that. And I also think it's quite clever sometimes. Sometimes, again, caveat. It doesn't ever stop just at the first obvious punchline, and even Mm. the silliest scenes do serve a plot point. And I quite like that thing of something's funny, then it's not funny, and they just keep going and going until it's funny again. That kind of Stuart Lee vomiting into the gaping mouth of Jesus, which is sort of gross out humour as well, but it's, you know, you get the visuals instead of watching a penis stuck in a zipper on screen, right? Stop it! (laughs) Right, so Jen's admitted she laughed through some of it, so I wondered which bits, if any, made you laugh. Uh, Jen? I can so I can say like it, it, I'm sorry, Hannah. Cover your ears. Um, oh, we're going to talk about that fucking scrotum again. We are because uh, I think the thing is, I I do think like it's disgusting and it is horrible, but it's they do it very well. Like it is just like bam, 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 bam. Like so, he's there. He's looking at the birds. The birds are gone. Oh no, is he looking at her? No, he didn't meet. Oh God! And then quickly ah. And and then all the people come in and the, and they do their turn of like ah, and then it, you know, and then there's all the people outside like they build it. I think perfectly. Yes, yeah, I, agree. I, I think it is. I think it is masterfully done. It's just not something that I enjoy, but I I did honk with laughter during it, and I also would say, I think that um, I think that Matt Dillon is brilliant in it. I think he's fantastic in it. He's so crazy. Like some of the bits he does where he's talking about about where he's basically overheard her chatting about stuff. And so he wants to demonstrate that he's exactly the right kind of guy for her. And then he talks about, I don't know, like working with people with disabilities, for example. And he says awful things. Yeah. What he says is not funny, but the way that they do it again is very clever because this man's a douchebag and he's not it's not presented as aspirational it's presented as this man's a prick yeah i I also think the use of the r word in this film is shocking and really jarring to us now we've noticed a lot of 90s films it was something that was in there and it's in series so it was much more commonly accepted but i will say that warren is a very well done sympathetic character i think no Oh, I'm not sure about that. Oh, okay. No, I don't I think, think he's, he's a sympathetic tropes, character. Though. I think, I think he's a sympathetic character, but I do think he is used as the butt of some of the jokes. I don't think he's always used as the butt of the jokes, but I do think he is sometimes used as the butt of the jokes, and that I hope would not happen now. Ugh. That now would be seen as punching down. I oh, hope. Jen, like, this film would not get made today, right? No, I think no. we can all agree uh, on that. Okay, so I, I actually agree with your point about him using that word because what they're essentially saying is you can't fake being a nice person mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. caring. You, and he's you know. stupid as well. He's not smart yeah. enough to have done his research properly. No, yeah, exactly. So, so I do get that point. And, yeah, a big fond of W.L. Brown. I mean, obviously, he's in Deadwood um, and he's smashing, he's, as I said earlier, he's Dan Doherty. And it's, I suppose, not a bad performance, but it's just, I just don't know. I don't know why it's there other than for jokes. He's just there to set up jokes. They might not be directly about him, but the fact that he is intellectually disabled means that 
there are a lot of jokes about intellectually disabled people and sometimes they are the butt of that joke. I think sometimes that is the case, but I don't think it's consistently the case. That's that, I don't think that makes it better. But I think sometimes, like the bit where she's there and she's giving them the burgers and whatever, I think is like quite nice in a lot of ways because she's just interacting and it's all very normal and casual and whatever. Does he's that make a bit, sense? He's a bit, enter quotes, magical Negro though, isn't he? He is, if if... If, if he likes someone, he seems to be able to, you know, see through the... It's the fact that he likes Ted is one of the reasons that she sort of sees through the others. I don't know. It's like he learns to trust him. Ted actually puts the work in to get Warren Ted's to nice trust to him. him. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I get that. I just, I, I personally don't think it stands out. Like I say, I just don't think it would get made today for various reasons. Honey, you didn't laugh at all then. There was no laughing. I didn't like it. I also thought it, it was... Pretty homophobic. It's ageist as well. That entire plot about him and the hitchhiker, obviously it's about putting Woogie there with him, so they've needed a way to do that. Yeah. But it mostly seems to exist just to make a load of I'm not gay, oops I they look like I was sucking a bloke's dick. Oops, I've now been cuddled by a big guy in prison, you know possibly prison rape joke thrown in there. The implication of it all, I think, is quite homophobic. Yeah, I didn't get that. That doesn't mean it's... Obviously, doesn't mean it's not there, but I, I didn't really get that. It didn't massively register with me either, I have to say. Don't know that, that gay people are the butt of the jokes, though, to me. I didn't read it as the... No, being... he's the butt of the joke, because yeah. the implication is people think he's gay. It's presented as shameful, I guess, isn't yeah. it? Like, it's presented as shameful... Fair dues. I'm genuinely surprised that you, and I know it's daft and I know it's really daft and fully out there and, you know, the fact that that dog is actually fully on fire, do you know what I mean? But actually quite a lot of animal cruelty in this as well. Poor Jen messaged me to go, I'm so sorry, a horse died. And I was like, Jen, (laughs) buckle up. (laughs) Look at what I've chosen. I'd forgotten about that scene. And also, crucially, the dog is okay. Yeah, but it wouldn't be, right? No, but like that, and I think that's it. The film is very much, it reminds you it's a film. None of this is real because it's mm. so outrageous. So I think they get away with stuff a lot more, or certainly did when it came out, got away with a lot more stuff because it's constantly like, yeah, they that wouldn't survive. You get a fish hook in your mouth, you are not going to be like, yeah. like just then going on, skipping off with your girlfriend and having a smooch. You get your squirt and caught in the zipper. Sorry, Hannah. You are not oh, going to be... Oh, can we stop mentioning it? He does, he does say he was in hospital for two weeks. Uh... Yeah, but at the, in the scene, he doesn't cry. He's like, it isn't like he's screaming or anything. It's all very... He's it's in not shock. how. It's not how someone would react to that happening to them. So, yeah, I think it does remind us constantly that this is actually a film. It's too... You know, we've got fucking troubadours just turning up and singing a song. It is very much, this is a film. Can I ask you, Mick, which bits you thought were funny? Because I... I think Matt Dillon's character is hilarious. I think he's really funny. Uh, And, yeah, the the opening scene before the prom, which we won't describe again, Mm. but everyone knows what we're talking about, including Hannah. She's already cringing. And I think there's a little nostalgia for me there as well, because I did see it at the cinema and I saw it a few times since that. You know, I'm never going to watch it again. If in case you're like, oh, has Mick discovered a new favourite film? It's not going to be a (laughs) flicking pick down the line. Absolutely not. So I'm going to ask you. (laughs) I know the answer. Rated 
or dated? It's very, very, very dated, as discussed. I don't think it would be made again now. As discussed, there were moments where I did honk with laughter, but yeah, it's dated. Yeah, colossally dated. Well, three for three, I think it's definitely dated, although I did have an all right time watching it. Hannah, you're next on the wheels of steel. What are we watching? Yeah, it's me and, uh, yeah, saddle up, regulators. We're going to be watching Young Guns. And just so the listeners know, I've already been on the schedule because I'm excited. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.